Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Rise of the Planet of the Apes. With me in the Slate studios is Seth Coulter-Walls. Hello, Seth. Hey, Dana. And you are now an occasional Slate contributor. I don't think you had written for Slate when last we That's podcasted, right. but no, now right. you have. Mm-hmm. Um, Village Voice, other places. You write on music, film, culture, what have you. And now you're talking about... Rise monkeys. of the Planet of the Apes, yeah. Oh, not monkeys, apes, apes. Yes. Only the bad guys in this movie call them monkeys. I just identified myself with the, uh, the right. ape haters. No, you're, yeah, you're part of the problem. <laughs> all right, so, um, so first of all, I want to know, why did you want to come see this movie with me? Curious I, about the I, film itself? Yeah, definitely curious about the film itself. Also, just a nice uh, counterpoint to uh, The Tree of Life, which was mm-hmm. the last thing that we saw and spoiled together. <laughs> That's true, this really balances <laughs> out. Although, both sort of, you know, nature. Environmentally, like, conscious and sort of, like, uh, wishing for the... And know. about man versus nature in right. some way. So, yeah, actually, that's the ne- that's the next thing piece probably to write. Oh, but are you a fan of the old uh, Ape series? Not, like, a hardcore fan. And, and before we went to see it, I mentioned to a couple people, a couple friends of mine, that I was going, and they were incredibly hyped for the entire experience and in a way that made me feel like I probably didn't deserve going to see it early as much as other people did. But uh, growing up, I think there's sort of like a pretty consistent wallpapering on basic cable when I was growing up, uh, you know, TNT and things of that nature of, of some of those early Planet of the Ape movies and especially the reruns and the ones that were probably cheaper to license than the original like Heston one. It's, this is really a reinvention of the feeling of the franchise. I mean, it, I, I was thinking a lot about how modern sort of sci-fi franchises approach origin stories right because this this is an origin story it's a prequel it's how how earth became the planet of the apes right, right? right, right. although temporarily it doesn't make a lot of sense because it takes place in the present day so somehow charlton heston would have to get here in the future <laughs> but, <laughs> but soft, it. just aesthetically the universe is so I mean, the original planet of the apes movies as i remember just could care less about logic or origin or or feasibility of well, the whole much plan. more campy right, like, right. this, this, one, this they, one has pretensions to realism and like emotional like continuity and which is sort of where like sci-fi is at right now right i mean even if you think about star wars or things that are quite a bit later than Planet of the Apes, there is just a very sort of self-confident blazing through the, you know, the basics, right? Yeah, just so, kind of like because we say so. As we begin, we spend the first half hour or more of the movie mainly in the world of James Franco, who plays this scientist. I think the character's name is Will. We start with him. He's a young single scientist. He lives with his father, who's played by John Lithgow. Right. Who is I, suffering from Alzheimer's. Right. And he's in sort of the mid-stages of Alzheimer's. Right. And... Which gives James Franco all the more motivation to work on this. You're going to remember the uh, the name of the the, the chemical. Well, there's the some sort of like it's like a three letter name, and then it's with the suffix one twelve. Yeah, which it's A L Z one twelve. Something like that. I don't think it's A L Z. I don't think it's all. I don't think it's like all as directly like one to one as Alzheimer's is. That, but, <laughs> but, but like it's something kind of you know sciencey sounding. And he's engaged in this process of trying to develop uh, a human trial for this drug that he's been testing on chimpanzees to help their brains regenerate. It's like sort of this adaptation of kind of the loose like feeling of neuroscience that's kind of bopping around there where people are trying to you know actually understand what parts of the brain are responsible for which types of cognition and and James Franco's deeply engaged in trying to make a type of brain regenerating drug that can be introduced into the as a virus into an organism's body and then have that brain reestablish you know neuronal connections that have been ravaged by time or whatever right. or in the case of chimpanzees or, or apes simply have never existed, like the ability to, you know, sort of use their hands in a kind of opposite digit fashion. Or and to, stand, stand up, right? It's yeah, basically yeah. evolution in a, in a tube. And the first time when they're about to present to a board of investors this drug as something that now deserves a human trial, 
And a crazed it, chimp and breaks it, through breaks the glass. Breaks through from the, from the adjacent, you know, testing center and wreaks havoc through the entire foyer of this, you know, very sterile and expensive-looking private medical research facility and smashes into the boardroom where they're having this meeting. And then it's, like, officially dead, right? The project's over. You can't do this kind of research anymore, James Franco. You know, you, you forgot or you didn't learn early enough that this drug can cause madness. Um, but then we learn... As it turns out, that this the crazed chimp was only protecting her young. So she was the most successful result so far of the experiment. They right. call her bright eyes, which is a funny kind of nod to the first Planet of the Apes, which was what the uh, the kindly female uh-huh. chimp scientist called Charlton Heston, right, actually, right. because he was the brightest human in the cage, right? Yeah, yeah. So bright eyes um, is shot after she breaks up this meeting. But then it's discovered that, I guess, I don't know how this would have been kept secret in a right. lab, but well, she had the, a newborn the, infant. Yeah, and it's, all, it's like the, it's the lab tech. Uh, who later uh, spreads disease to all of humanity um, via bloody sneezes, who uh, just sort of out of nowhere, there's no background explanation for this in the movie, just James Franco sort of walk, like it's a cut and James Franco is a new scene and James Franco walks in and this guy sort of hands him the infant baby in swaddling clothes and says, oh, you know, BTW, here's a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the security at this lab is pretty lax. (laughs) Yeah, it's astonishing. So then in a a section of the movie that's really remarkably similar to the new documentary Project Nim, which is about the exact same thing, James Uh Franco takes this baby chimp home and raises it as a human, basically. So is he John Lithgow and the chimp? Right. It's sort of a sitcom in the making there, that part. And there's something sort of interesting in that I think that where they – it hinges – there's like the plot twist that happens later on that really hinges on that – First sequence where the baby chimp whose name is Caesar witnesses uh, what James Franco does, which is give some of the remaindered drugs that he took from the research facility after he was fired slash quit. It kind of happens in rapid succession there where they're like, you can't do this anymore while I quit. He then – Franco takes with him a few of the excess vials of this drug 112. Which sit, sit in his fridge for the rest of the movie, like <laughs> right. next to the tang. Right, exactly. He keeps them in his refrigerator initially because we know he wants to use them on John Lithgow to see – if, if he can reverse his Alzheimer's, Exactly. Right. So then there's this one point where uh, Caesar is standing in the doorway watching Franco as he administer, as he sort of ministers to his father. And I think this is like how we're, how we're supposed to buy later on that Caesar knows how to administer this, this drug. Um, but – but he is a very smart chimp. Very smart chimp. I because think, the, the, the gene therapy was passed on to him, right? Although he was never given the gene therapy, his in mother Euro, passed I think it on I, to him. The idea, yeah, exactly. So then there's this point where Franco decides to cross the Rubicon of like medical propriety and research and just decides to take this trial drug that hasn't been approved for human use and use it on his father to see what happens. And instantaneously, miracle of miracles – it makes his father not only like it not only beats the Alzheimer's into a fast retreat, but it also makes his father more brilliant than. He I love when he wakes up but... the morning after giving his daughtering father the shot, and his father's playing some Bach piece like perfectly. Yeah, yeah, no, the, I think the, the the night before it's like some terribly like constipated Chopin, and then and then, <laughs> and then and then like the morning the morning after the drug is administered, it's this like flawlessly hammered fugue <laughs> from like book two of the Well-Tempered Clavier. So, but I have to say, I mean, everything we're saying so far, I'm just remembering. I think this movie's too long and it's got some problems, but I actually think it establishes just the right tone of hokiness and maintains it right. throughout. And from the moment that chimp burst through into that meeting, I sort of realized <laughs> this is going to be just implausibility central, but it's going to be pretty fun. Yeah, I think, yeah, it was really fun. 
Seth, let me stop you for one minute so we can have a word from our sponsor before we get to the serious ape action of the second half of the movie. We're very happy to have Bing as our sponsor for the Slate Podcasts, the search engine that helps you decide. So I actually did a Bing search on Andy Serkis, who we're going to get to in, in the second half of our podcast, who's the uh, the actor who plays Caesar. He plays in a motion capture suit, the, uh, the the main ape who becomes the leader of the the Planet of the Apes. So I ran a Bing search on Andy Serkis, and it brought up not only a lot of great profiles of him and, and clips of him preparing for roles, including some of the material from the, uh, the, the DVD featurette from Lord of the Rings, which is something I highly recommend to any performance nerd watching him prepare that performance. But it also showed me what my friends on Facebook, I was logged into Facebook at the same time, shows what your Facebook friends have been reading and searching on that same topic. So among all these profiles of Andy Circus that came up, I was able to see which one a friend of mine who's an editor and whose taste I, I trust um, thought was the best profile of Andy Circus, And that's the one I bookmarked to read after we record. So give that feature a try. It's all at bing.com. So I want to get to how we get from this individual domestic story of raising a super smart ape to the rise of the planet of the apes. And I think a fun way to get there is this tiny but hilarious character of the next door neighbor yeah, of James Franco times, and his father. Yeah, he shows up four times in the movie and he's essentially the person with the lowest emotional intelligence IQ or EQ as they call it like in the entire history of the world and then we find out at the end of the movie that he works in the airline industry which sort of like explains it all. But in the first time that we see him, Caesar is let you know a precocious child ape who's running around the neighborhood and wanting to play with children and he finds himself in the next door backyard and this father is wielding this baseball bat like he's going to brain Caesar and he's so freaked out that there's a chimp running around or an ape and Lithgow and Franco have to sort of find him and like he's cowering and they have to protect him and and this man is just like screaming with a baseball bat and he's so over the top it's kind of there was a moment where I think the entire audience kind of laughed at like the extraordinary um, kind of off the rails and and, and uh, brutality sort of like by this character then he shows up later after the, the the sort of like technological middle part of the movie is where the drug doesn't forever fix John Lithgow's Alzheimer's. It's like not quite perfect enough and the Alzheimer's can take over again. He's wandering around the neighborhood and the neighbor who previously had this terrible relationship with the chimp now is like berating a man who's obviously ill in the street. John Lithgow walks out into the street, gets into a car that isn't his and starts banging it into other cars in the street. And this same neighbor who we've seen before – act without any sort of shred of empathy or anything, comes back out and starts yelling at a man, an elderly man who's clearly like not all there and starts slapping him around kind of and calling, saying he's going to call the police because he can't get to his job now that he's got a, you know, his bumper fell off his car. At which point Caesar <laughs> jumps down out of a tree. Bam! And just like goes completely. Does eight. he bite his finger off? That's the thing. This is a PG-13 movie, right? I think there's some real digit severing going on in this scene that we don't end up seeing. Um, but then we never I, – I sort of wanted a close-up of the hand when we see the neighbor the third time. <laughs> you never see the bloody stump, but you get the impression that, that Caesar has perhaps bitten off his finger. And so as a result of attacking this neighbor, right. who then will pop up later for some more suffering, <laughs> Caesar is taken away to a to a chimp facility. Again, weird echo of Project Nim. I wish you'd seen it because it's, it's, it's in a strange way this movie is sort of like a, a, a camp version of it. Huh. Um, so he gets taken off to this inhumane chimp facility that's run by Brian Cox in a small but but great role. Very this, devilish. Yeah, yeah this, this very animal insensitive – um, uh, primate, I don't know, handler. Whose son is like even worse than him who runs the who, – who's co-running the, right? uh, the dungeon. And did you notice his son is played by Tom Felton who's Draco Malfoy in the, in the Harry Potter movies. So it's just – it's oh, kind of wow. great that he's having an afterlife as another callow, evil youth. Huh. 
who's who's prodding the uh, the apes with with a cattle prod. So Caesar has been banished to this place. He's obviously the smartest chimp in the place. Right. Um, there's also apes and orangutans there. So here's where we start to see the uh, the ape coalition begin to form. And I think that's when the movie really takes off, too. The first half is sort of cheesy good fun, but maybe a little too much time spent on Lithgow and Franco, and we really want to get to the apes, not to mention the planet. I spent a long time thinking, like, how is this going to become about the whole planet? Because <laughs> right. it's such a domestic drama. But once and we just totally to left facility, out Franco's love interest, too, which is like, you know. Yeah, but fun. she's so generic. It's Frida Pinto who plays her from right. uh, from Slumdog Millionaire. And but she has she's, no she's problem. She's just absolutely, yeah, she's just the, the nice girl with lip gloss. I guess she's supposed to be a scientist, but, you know, she's just sort of the she's supportive a vet. girlfriend. She's a vet who sews up. Uh, oh, that's who, right. That's right. She's up. a zoo vet. She's yeah. a zoo vet. But um, she apparently doesn't have any problem with, with James Franco's fridge only having extra containers, extra, <laughs> extra vials of the, like, for the five years that elapse in their relationship in 20 minutes, like, the fridge is still just filled with beer and... ALZ. ALZ 112. <laughs> <laughs> like, anyway, so yeah, but then we get to the to the dungeon and the ape coalition where Caesar essentially begins the entire rest of the movie, which is slowly educating his fellow apes and chimpanzees in a, in a, in a very nice and sort of almost matronly orangutan, right? And sort of like who plays this role, who also knows how to sign words and who, and who begins a dialogue uh, with with uh, with Caesar. This stuff I thought was really well handled. The sort of the question of, of what is an animal and how do animals communicate with each other right. and whether Caesar at this point occupies the place more of a, of a human or an animal. I don't know. In, in in some way I thought this part was really sort of sensitive to animal issues, you know? I mean including the uh, the more ape-like apes, the the un ALZ 112 treated apes that, right. that live in the facility, you see their motivations as well and sort of why they would mistrust right. this outsider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, just uh, in the service of speeding through it, uh, the, uh, once again, James Franco is in the biomedical research lab. He has an idea for a super strength uh, version of the old drug, which is called 113. And uh, he induces the head of you know passing money around to – uh, to give him the money for the project based on the fact that his father had success with the human trial. And it's this drug that once Caesar realizes he, how he can escape the penitentiary for one night, he travels back and steals some of it from Franco's fridge uh, where it's just sitting unceremoniously un- unexplained and then takes it back and distributes it amongst – like pokes a hole in it like it's tear gas and rolls it down the entire uh, length of the hallway. So all- <laughs> and this is where things go. I love this part, right? <laughs> right. Because he's essentially gassing the monkeys into smartness. smartness. Right. <laughs> like- and the next morning they all wake up, they stand up straight. Right. right? They're, they're doing like whatever like the equivalent of Lithgow playing Bach is. Like they're you know, all of a sudden like you know, brilliant. And so he can then gather them in the atrium, the exercise room of this prison basically that they're in he and start language mobilizing. Tutoring. Yeah, like language tutoring, which kind of freaks out Brian Cox who doesn't take as much heat as he probably should from the fact that it's very clear that they're you know beginning to <laughs> do syllables <laughs> and chanting together, um, but then very soon after that, it's uh, it, it's time for them to break loose. So then we get what is my favorite sequence in the movie. It's sort of rare for a summer blockbuster to get better as it goes along, but right. I really like the twenty last twenty minutes of this movie better than than all the rest of it. So then we forgot to mention that all this is taking place in the Bay Area, right around right. San Francisco, yeah, yeah. which is a great scenic place. I mean, if there's one, I didn't realize that I wanted to see chimps take over San Francisco, but if there's one city that is just awesome to see taken over by primates. It's, it's, it's San Francisco. Why is that? Well, I think it's specifically it's because the, um, cause the Golden Gate Bridge is a great place for monkeys to be swinging on. Right. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of cables for monkey antics. There's a cable card. That was when the movie really won me over. Like, I'm with you. I'm just so with you on the monkeys commandeering the cable car and right. riding it to the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> right. So, you know, and what's great about it, too, is that it's not just that the monkeys are taking over San Francisco, right? It's that... 
they have a plan. They want to go to the Redwoods, which is, uh, you know, happens early in the movie when James Franco takes baby Caesar to the Redwoods and he has a great time. And that's his sort of signal innovation as a leader of the chimps after they break out of the prison is that they should just all go live in the Redwoods. And so they want to get there. But because they've sufficiently freaked out a sufficient number of humans by bursting out of the lab and being able to talk and, you know, being able to sort of, you know, free the other monkeys at the zoo. And now it's a kind of mass exodus to the Redwoods. There's a strong impulse to kill them all from the evil medical labs guy who's like flying around in a helicopter and shooting at them with other people. And what's great about the Golden Great Bridge scene is is that there's actual like there's a reasonable method of you know strategy going on. There's like the higher that they go in the elevation by swinging up on the cables, they're covered by fog and can't be seen by the helicopters. And then they can go underneath the bridge and you know swing from you know iron bar to iron bar as they're trying to cross the bridge. And get to the redwoods. Yeah, I mean this this scene is really choreographed or, or, or blocked. I mean, obviously the blocking is happening with digital monkeys for the most part, because anytime you see them from an aerial shot or there's more than one of them, it's it's not basically a guy in a suit. It's it's digitized right. chimps. But there's really a lot of thought put into chimp human warfare and what advantages the chimps would have and what advantages the humans would have and how the whole thing would play out. I thought it was really imaginative. Yeah, it was it was fun and and you know, believable wasn't the goal, but it was uh, engaging and surprising at times. So as as the movie ends, um, they're clearly setting up a sequel of some kind. The chimps do, at least a, a large contingent of them, do make it to the Redwoods. They win the battle, although it's, again, like the plausibility of the fact that then people would just accept that Muir Woods has been taken <laughs> over by chimps, so now it's fine. Right. But um, but we're not going to have to worry about people for long anyway because that one lab tech, the one who helped James Franco smuggle Caesar out of the lab when he was a baby, has in now a, contracted – In a subsequent test of the 113 drug that the unscrupulous, uh, not Franco-supervised medical team has been testing, he uh, ingests a certain amount of uh, kind of aerosol-delivered – version of the 113 drug, which makes him immediately sick. He's not home. For, he doesn't report for work. He's sneezing blood. Uh, and he is going to James Franco's house, deathly pale and ill and sweaty. Oh, and the neighbor gets blood sneezed the, on him. That's another that's of the neighbor happened. moments. That's right. the neighbor moment. So the neighbor... And it's kind of great about the movie is that it never explains why this neighbor keeps popping up. It seems completely gratuitous the first the, – the, the two times that he reappears after he's been the schlamazzle, you know, in the first instance and then he gets his finger bitten off and then he's getting sneezed on with blood. It looks like we're just – we're just pouncing on this poor neighbor guy. <laughs> and if anything, like, but the really great thing is, and this is, you know, this is a spoiler special, so we can talk about it. But the great thing is, is that his being sneezed on by the sick lab tech who uh, is looking for James Franco to get answers to questions about the super aerosol 113, you know, brain enhancing drug. He sneezes blood on this guy who just looks like, you know, God, I'm in this movie with <laughs> like fingers bitten off and beaten up by apes, and now I'm getting blood sneezed on me. Time to think about moving. Exactly right. Like, or just stop going to this guy's house, right? <laughs> stop. <laughs> Why is he even curious at this point? What we see at the end of the movie is that after we know that the lab tech himself has died from the sickness that he's contracted, the uh, we see. It comes out – it's like one of these things that happens after the above-the-line credits happen. People are already streaming out of the theater and then the movie slams back and shows us the neighbor leaving the house again and – except he's wearing – you know, he, he looks like a pilot or, you know, like a co-pilot. And he goes to an airport and he's, you know, pulling his piece of luggage behind him. And uh, all of the, the digital, you know, overhead deal that t- talks about arrivals and departures is slowly zooming in on the city of New York as he is as as he like leaves the frame and then cuts to black and then for the rest of the credit sequence we're seeing a flight path from San Francisco to New York and then once 
you know, blood sneezed neighbor lands in New York, then there's, you know, this spore of like other departures from New York that signal the traveling of this like airborne virus that then is going to, you know, apparently kill humanity. So good job, neighbor. <laughs> right. So so we're looking at a depopulated Earth and the planet of the apes by the beginning. It's, it's, it's a pretty clean setup, I have to say. Yeah. So let's talk about um, performances and stuff before we sign off on this movie. I mean, I'm overall going to give it a B plus. I would say that if you're interested, if, if your ears perk up at the mention of Planet of the Apes, you should probably see this movie. Yeah, I'd say so. I think the most remarkable performance in it, actually, and I sort of guessed that this was who it was midway through the movie, is Andy Serkis as, as Caesar, as uh-huh. the main ape, who's this actor, who's this English actor, I think he's English, who's mainly known for, uh, for motion capture. He was Gollum in the Lord of the Rings movies. He was King Kong in Peter Jackson's King Kong. He may have done other mocap roles that uh, I don't he know said about. Mo-cap. That's all I want. <laughs> You're just waiting for mocap. I, I just wanted you to say mocap a bunch. I, it was a, that was but, a new term of art for me. But I mean, Andy Serkis, I guess, you know, nerds know this, but he is the king of mocap. And you don't really think about who is the guy inside the, you know, suit against the green screen covered in sensors. But if you watch the Lord of the Rings DVD extras, which I recommend highly anyway, something more interesting than the movie in many parts, <laughs> because just seeing how the whole thing was, was mounted is pretty incredible. But there's a whole half hour DVD featurette about Andy Serkis and his preparation for that role as Gollum. And you come out of it just in awe and admiration of the guy. I mean, it's so hard to act in one of those suits. It's so artificial. And he's playing something that's not even human. He's playing this kind of weird mythical creature or, or an animal in the other two cases. And he just really transforms himself. He's almost more like a mime or a dancer or something. He's really working on kind of going deep into these these body gestures that just change his whole way of moving. And he just he's fantastic. And I think it's the best character in the movie, even though half the time, you know, it's it's he's digitized. The doctor sciencey stuff is never going to be convincing, and it's never really that interesting, and that that could be cut. But I think that a lot of the stuff, especially at the home and with Lithgow, especially the, the Lithgow relationship with Caesar, is actually pretty well acted. I think both sides of that are acted well. In the first weeks and months, when Caesar is trapped in this dungeon in a concrete jail with a chain link fence, he at some point magically there's you know there's terrible food. It's not at all what he's used to for the the, the Lithgow. Franco home where he's got like nice cantaloupe to eat. Um, he, they're eating this slop and um, at a certain point, there's like a piece of chalk that just finds its way into the floor of his cell and Caesar takes it to draw on the wall a replica of the pattern of the window, this, this circular window with like a kind of beveled like design and wood wood, into, wood inset design in it that we see often when he's a small child. A, a, a it's small, his bedroom window. It's his bedroom window and he recreates it and it's a really kind of sweet moment and then there's a point in time when he is so angry and upset with humankind and the abuses in the like terrible dungeon of like, at, you know, bad uh, behavior that he decides to, that he takes a a rag. I think it's actually his one of his old pieces of, of his old clothing, and uses it to erase the uh, that circular uh, replica. And then, the, then during the sort of mayhem that's the prelude to the final scene on the bridge, we see that there is uh, ch- uh, there is ape graffiti uh, that is now being like placed on stop signs and uh, out in the world, out in San Francisco, that and, like on a you know on a on a red stop on like a you know octagonal stop sign. There's this the same image of a window painted over it like graffiti. This is this is sort of like the chimp 12 monkeys code or something of like, you know, their rage at humanity. Yeah, I mean, it's so well established why they would feel that rage that I almost felt like there's there's kind of this like 
I don't know. There's just a, there's a really liberatory feeling to the chimps' escape at the end. In a way, they're the bad guys because right. they're wreaking havoc on the world and they're going to obliterate humanity ultimately, or, or the, the viruses. But they're but, but there's really modest, but there's right? really a, it's almost like a, a '60s feeling of kind of like go chimps, you know. We could spoil this movie all day long, but I think at this point we've we've made our case, right? We've yeah. sold people on it. You, you can't expect greatness, but this is a summer blockbuster. No? Yeah, it was way better than most movies I think that are released in August. All right, Seth. Thanks a lot for coming in to see the movie, and thanks for coming to spoil it with me. Yeah, thank you, Dana. Our producer is Krishnan Vasudevan. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 